This is an ABC podcast. Dr Joy Jong remembers that big day back in 2018. And when I turned on my phone, my screen basically exploded. With news that a Chinese scientist, Dr He Zhengkui, had created the world's first ever gene-edited babies, twin girls, and another baby was on the way. Even today, I think it's unthinkable that someone, especially someone without any medical training, uh, have dared to conduct this experiment. An unthinkable, illegal and dangerous experiment. I'm Natasha Mitchell. This is Science Friction. The scientist behind the world's first gene-edited babies is now out of jail and tweeting has he and the world learnt anything? There have been no verified reports on the welfare of these three children since. Their situation in China is shrouded in secrecy. I mean, this was a, a reckless and really unjustified experiment with no clear follow-up. Dr Katie Hasson is Associate Director of the Centre for Genetics and Society, a non-profit social justice organisation in the USA. Her centre has joined a global coalition to stop designer babies, which last week launched an international declaration to prevent a repeat of these births. There have been assurances that they are healthy, but there hasn't been any real evidence that that's true. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? That the first children created through gene editing, the world has absolutely no information about them. Yeah. Joy Jong is a Chinese-born British sociologist of science and co-author of The Elephant and the Dragon in Contemporary Life Sciences. And what I found even more extraordinary is that to this day, we actually don't have a clear sense of what kind of administrative sanction has been imposed on He Jiankui since his 2018 experiment. We don't really know the detail, and more importantly, we don't know which institute is actually enforcing it or keeping an eye on him. And this is actually a piece of very simple information that I've tried to seek for months and getting nowhere. Joy Jong knows China. She did her first degree in medicine there. Every single female in my family are trained in medicine. It's a kind of a family tradition. I think even to this day, I'm perhaps still considered uh, somewhat a black sheep in the family. Now she heads up the Centre for Global Science and Epistemic Justice at the University of Kent in the UK. Last month, Joy and colleagues, including scientists and bioethicists from mainland China, put some really gnarly questions direct to Dr He at an extraordinary meeting they invited him to. More on that in the tick. But a reminder, the three children born in Dr He's experiment were subject to what's called heritable genome editing. A particular manipulation or edit was made to the DNA in their genome at the embryo stage. This is risky, right? The science is still in development. There could be unintended effects on the child's genome and any changes would be passed on to their children and their children's children and so on. Plus, it raises the spectre of parents one day genetically designing their babies. Dr He has recently completed a three-year jail sentence in China for his actions, but unbelievably, he is back on Twitter claiming to be recruiting patients and raising private funds for more gene editing trials, this time in adults though, not on embryos. And his proposal might be legitimate, but many are asking why would Dr Herr be allowed anywhere near patients again after what he did? 
there's not a strong enough public challenge or public questioning of what he's doing. And this is why you can kind of see he becomes bolder and bolder by the month of advertising his research. I think at the beginning, it was quite modest. You just announcing he has established his new lab. He wants to do other research. He's submitting grant. And every now and then he would insert a quite odd phrase of uh, almost like a slogan type of uh, tweet saying, research needs ethics. He's been claiming that he wants to raise a lot of money for human trials of gene editing in people who have a a form of muscular dystrophy, DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And he's even been posting photos of prospective patients who might participate in these trials, which he's nominating to start in 2025. I mean, what do you make of his bravado? He's just served three years in prison. Is he publicly flaunting Chinese authorities or is is the dynamic that's playing out a bit more complex than that? I think most people are, are, are quite puzzled. He could be thinking that last time everyone criticized me for keeping it something secret and this time I'm going to go complete public. And two, I do think after prison, he's a dangerously ambitious person and he wants to come back to science and he wants to capitalize on the little public attention he has. Dr. Hur made his first shock announcement in 2018 on stage at the second International Human Gene Editing Summit in Hong Kong. Well, last week the summit was held again in London. Joy Jong was a speaker in the opening sessions. And you would think that Dr. Hur's case and the lessons we must learn from it would have been front and centre at this summit. But no. There was a real concerted effort at the summit to distance themselves from what happened at the last summit. Katie Hassan from the Centre for Genetics and Society, who was in the audience. But, you know, if you think back to the 2018 summit, the final statement there was that Dr. Ho was condemned for being irresponsible. And then in the same breath, there was the announcement that it is time to pursue a path to bringing heritable genome editing to the clinic. So they said, He was reckless and irresponsible, a rogue. Now it's time for us to do this in the responsible way, right? There's a real contradiction in that statement. And that carries over, I think, to this summit where there was no interest in talking about Dr. He and even efforts to direct the discussion away from heritable genome editing, even though it was clearly a topic of interest to the people attending the meeting. The Centre for Genetics and Society, your centre, has joined other groups to form a coalition to stop designer babies, is is the heading. And this past week, it issued a declaration, quote, opposing the efforts of a group of irresponsible scientists to overturn the existing legal bans and prohibitions on heritable human genetic modification. What is the motivation behind this declaration? And Who are the group of scientists that you are referring to as irresponsible? They are highly regarded scientists. They are highly placed in elite institutions. They are among the organizers of the summit. There are scientists who clearly support going ahead with heritable genome editing. There are specific efforts in the UK right now to change the law that that governs 
the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which licenses and, and provides oversight to fertility clinics and embryo research. They are updating their regulations and they are asking that Parliament give them the authority to decide at some future point when heritable genome editing is safe enough to be allowed in the UK. So they are, they are seeking quite explicitly the authority to, at some future point, change the law and allow gene editing to be used in reproduction, in fertility clinics uh, to create genetically modified children. A large part of the, the Human Genome Editing Summit in London was focused on so-called somatic cell gene editing. This is a way of editing, say, your or my genome as adult humans to treat or even cure deadly or disabling diseases. And there are many clinical trials underway or about to get underway using gene editing in this way as a therapeutic possibility. And a young woman with the red blood cell disorder, sickle cell disease, got up and spoke about her experience of receiving a very successful gene editing treatment. So the technology has the potential to really change people's lives. Does your coalition not acknowledge that promise? They absolutely do. And I think that is the reason why this distinction between uh, somatic gene editing or gene therapies that are used to treat existing patients and heritable genome editing when we're talking about editing early embryos or human sperm or eggs in order to create genetically modified children, right, in order to change the genes and traits of future children and in a way that will be passed down to future generations. The distinction between those two is so important. There is, you know, fairly widespread support for somatic genome editing. It really is making impressive advances and has the potential to change a lot of people's lives. I mean, you can support the, the treatments and the benefits of somatic gene therapies, of, of using this as medicine for existing patients, while also seeing the real risks to both individuals and society that could come if we start down the path towards editing our future children and generations. The concluding statement by the conference organising committee this time was that heritable human genome editing remains unacceptable at this time. Public discussions and policy debates continue and are important for resolving whether this technology should be used. Does that statement allay any of your concerns? I think that statement is an important step back from the statement at the 2018 summit, which said it's time to lay out a path to move this into the clinic, you know, should society decide it's acceptable. It does seem to be sort of a, a pause, right? It's unacceptable at this time. Do you get any sense at the summit that the door is being kept wide open, though, for the possibility of human genome editing, heritable human genome editing, down the track? Yes. And Dr. He Zhuangkui already pushed that door wide open in 2018, didn't he, with the creation of three children who are allegedly now nearly five and who we know nothing about. But Dr. Joy Jong, co-author of The Elephant and the Dragon in Contemporary Life Sciences, has a cautionary message about shining the spotlight on Dr. He and on China alone. Quite quickly, this was packaged as yet another Chinese scandal. 
a Chinese rogue scientist, and you see that as a trivialization of his case. This is a, definitely a trivialization. It's not a Chinese phenomena, but I think it's a global phenomena. As I've previously reported on science friction, Dr. Herr, a biophysicist, not a doctor, had high-profile mentors and colleagues in the West, including a Nobel laureate. He did his doctoral and postdoctoral science degrees at prestigious universities in the USA. He had friends in high places, scientifically speaking. And I'll link to those shows, which also cover more of the science behind what he did on the Science Friction website. And by the way, I did approach Dr. Hurt for an interview too. He did not reply to my invitation. There's been speculations that um, perhaps there were similar research going on in the world, but we just don't know, and, and we don't even know how to track them. And that really worries people. China is, I gather, the world's second largest investor in science. There's been a massive push over the last decades to really build its capacity as a global power in the life sciences especially. So a lot of intense investing, recruiting of expat scientists like Dr Her back to China over many years now. Uh. And, and yet... Much of the West, or the global North, often considers China as a a kind of hotbed for fraudsters and rogue scientists. You make this observation. What's the dynamic at work there? China has always had this image issue, and I think it is part of the epistemic injustice. That is, we tend to think, oh, they're the global South, they're the developing country, so they must not have really good science. That kind of bias was created perhaps by a, a Western um, lack of knowledge of what's happening in China, but it was also aggravated by Chinese censorship. Um, that is, it makes it really hard, really difficult for the real stories about real research in China to come out and, and, and let the world know. So we mainly receive two types of information from China. One, a government propaganda. And, and the other source would be the type of scandals. And of course, you can't expect anyone to have a fair judgment of a country if these are the only two main types of information you receive. You've been part of a, a couple of extraordinary gatherings this past month. Why huh. did you and colleagues at the University of Kent invite He Zhengkui to participate in a seminar on gene editing and social values? This was uh. really the first time he'd kind of made a foray back into the public sphere. And uh. there was a risk of you giving him a platform. Yeah. My research is mostly on transnational governance of emerging science. So I'm mostly interested in how to enforce good governance in different countries, especially in relation to superpowers such as China. And I get really frustrated by the fact that China has yet to have a public discussion on He Jiankui's case. And because of censorship, everything seemed to be kept quiet. Thus, we extended the invitation. We didn't design it as a way, uh, for, for example, to elicit a confession out of him or apology. My interest was not on that. And what did he tell you? Was he forthcoming? You asked a whole lot of questions of him around the ethics of what he did, around what's happened since, what he thinks should happen next, how his work should be regulated or or governed, and what did he offer you? Um, For all these above questions, he answered with the same sentence, that is, email me. 
Right. And uh, he he declined to engage in any discussion. And I was quite prepared that he won't tell us anything substantial. He may manipulate the event into his um, um, publicity narratives. Uh, I was well prepared for that. And this is why at the beginning of the um, event, um, I did hint at the audience that what is um, not said is as important as what is said. But I have to say, I was a little bit surprised of how at ease he was with not answering all these questions. Wasn't nervous. He wasn't nervous at all. And I think when he repeatedly um, refusing to answer any of the questions, including very simple ones, such as, does he think heritable human genome editing should be allowed at the moment? He would still say, email me. And sometimes he would say, email me in a quite um, whimsical manner. I would say it's a little bit shocking because I wonder if he knew how offensive it was to patients to see how he, he, he think all of this as if it was just a play. A joke. Yeah, a joke. And, and, um, it's all theater. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the fact that he's actually talking about people's health and families because I was originally trained in medicine, and to be honest, uh, that is something that I find really difficult to stomach. I, I was I was quite angry when I saw that. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue here is that people's lives are at, at stake here. On the on Twitter the next day, he he wrote the the conference was very well organised, a lot of valuable discussion. Professor Joy Jong did a, a good job. I'm looking forward to seeing more dialogues between science and ethics. And you were very robust on Twitter and replied to him. We didn't have any dialogue as you refused to participate in, this, in the discussion. I'm not convinced that you have a plan in place to carry out your uh, muscular dystrophy research ethically or responsibly. In fact, there seemed to be little concrete in the plan you are boasting to patients. And, and I, I think those tweets have actually disappeared now, but... Did you get any indication from him that Dr. Herr is interested in engaging, committed to engaging on the ethical consequences of his past research and his future research? I don't really think he has even thought through what um, ethic review involves. In, re- yeah. in response, I gather that Chinese scientists and bioethicists on mainland China have have organised a meeting and you were asked to attend that meeting. So what can you tell us about that meeting and how Chinese scientists and bioethicists are responding to his his efforts? So after we organised the event, um, I actually got a quite angry phone call from a quite um, influential individual in China questioning me the intent of organizing this event. And and people have, have different views in, in terms of what would be the appropriate sanction that's put on uh, He Jianghui or what would be the appropriate regulatory uh, requirements that's put on um, private or social enterprises. Uh, so, so there's still debate in China. And at our event with He Jianghui in February, there was actually a Chinese scientist who um, explicitly articulate this point. And he was worried that too much ethical red tapes will hamper the development of science. 
many Western, many scientists in the global north feel the same way. Yeah, exactly. There are many Western scientists advocating for CRISPR gene editing to be uh, deployed on embryos for research purposes or even at some stage clinical purposes. That's right. Uh, globally, um, there are an increasing number of um, actors that are outside of conventional scientific and research institutes that are conducting highly cutting-edge research, but they're outside of the traditional governing realm. And, and how do we engage with them? And, and how do we make sure that they will comply with existing ethical guidelines as well as social expectations. But when it comes to debating and discussing those social expectations and any concerns about human gene editing, who is at the table? Katie Hassan. When you start the conversation about genome editing from the perspective of society, of social justice, of human rights, you, you have a completely different conversation. In the days leading up to the Human Genome Editing Summit in London, your Centre for Genetics and Society hosted your own summit and you called it a challenge to those meeting in London. You called it genetic justice from start to summit. And I'm interested to understand what sorts of genetic or social justice concerns about heritable human genome editing you were using that summit to raise. What our Missing Voices initiative does is bring together both civil society advocates and scholars who work from the perspectives of disability rights in particular, reproductive rights and justice, uh, racial justice, environmental issues, indigenous sovereignty. Bringing these voices together really highlights concerns that seem to not even be on the radar at the international summit. And, and I'll give an example which is that there was so much focus on the experiences and perspectives and organizations that represent patients at the summit, which is, of course, critically important. Yeah. But there's a broader disability rights movement that turns the tension away from the idea of, of fixing people's bodies and really says, you know, what can we do as a society to provide access to everyone, right, with with a variety of abilities. And so many people see their, their disability as a part of their identity, um, and particularly when it comes to the question of heritable genome editing, you know, there's there's a real concern in disability communities that this, this talk about um, eliminating disabilities is really about eliminating disabled people, right? Making sure that people like them are not born into, into society. And I think that's a real concern. And that perspective was one slide in one uh, presentation, right, at this uh, international summit. And in our summit, we, we really tried to bring that centrally into the conversation. These are people who have a really good perspective on what could happen if you introduce a powerful technology like heritable genome editing. And the the way forward is really to bring these voices more centrally into conversations and also to, to make sure that there is a dialogue happening, that the public conversation is not separate and to the side of the conversation where scientists are sort of making decisions to go ahead without without the rest of us. And this is where I think cultural difference and developmental difference matters. And 
different communities and not just not just nations because within nations there are different communities i think different communities have different priorities and they may see things differently and they may not be right and they may not be wrong but we can only make an informed decision when we take in as many of these different accounts as possible and what about dr he jiankui what should china and the world do about him now Heritable genome editing of embryos was already illegal in China before his experiment created those three gene-edited children in 2018. And China did establish a National Science and Technology Ethics Committee in late 2020 and just a few weeks ago published an update to their ethical guidelines governing biomedical research involving humans. But is that enough to stop a future Dr. He? Some people think he's a mad scientist. And other people think he, he's a scapegoat uh, of a uh, much larger global research culture. I say it's both. Mm. And, and I think context is, is, is quite important and his personality is quite important. But mm. I do want to draw people's attention to the fact that perhaps we cannot, we cannot change his personality, but we can change the system. There are still quite a number of work we can do to prevent such tragedy from happening in the future. Dr. Joy Jong from the University of Kent will put more info about her team's recent encounter with Dr. Her, a really intriguing write-up, well worth a read, on the Science Friction website, which is where you'll find the full archive of Science Friction episodes too. Check them out or on the ABC Listen app. The show is produced by me and Erica Vols. Big thanks to studio engineer Tim Jenkins this week, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.